0: maternal mortality crisis in the United States is largely based on preventable issues. Do not make assumptions when it comes to your medical care. Have the conversation and put it all out on the table so that you are on the exact same page as your medical team is. You are the decision maker, which means you get to choose who's at your table and you get to decide when to ask somebody to leave and when to bring somebody else on. For your health, if you're going to be pregnant for your future children's health, for your family's health, we have to speak up. We have to say something. And we cannot, as hard as it is, as cumbersome as it feels, as exhausted as you are, we have to have those conversations with our medical team. We cannot assume that everything is taken care of.
1: Welcome to the Asian Detox podcast, the podcast where we boldly reclaim Asian American prosperity. We have relatable conversations about how being Asian American shows up in our day-to-day lives, how money is deeply embedded in our culture, and how you can choose to define your own version of success in a world that tries to tell us how to be. I'm your host, TJ Way, your hashtag very Asian, non-binary, gluten and dairy-free money habits coach, and I want you to know that you don't have to live in the boxes other people put you in. You can design your abundant life in a way that honors your heritage while enjoying a life of ease and alignment, and you can do it while making money and building generational wealth. All right, welcome back to the Asian Detox Podcast. Today, we have Parjat Deshpande. As an author, speaker, and the CEO of a global boutique company dedicated to reducing pregnancy complications, Parjat has supported hundreds of women through her programs and one on one work. In addition to training medical providers, birth workers, and allied professionals, Parjat uses a trauma informed approach to improve high risk pregnancy outcomes and ending prematurity. Parjat was also recently featured on CNBC Make It, talking about the maternal mortality crisis in the U.S. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Glad to have you. So will you share for everybody how they can find you online? Sure. So
0: best places are through my website, barijatdeshpande.com is just my full name.com. And there's links to my social media platforms. I'm mostly on LinkedIn And you can search by my name, you'll find me, there's not a lot of us out there, or on Instagram
1: and my handle is healthy.highriskpregnancy. Perfect. Yes, and those links will be in the description. Before we get dive deep into the actual topic, especially um, this season being around self-care, I like to do an icebreaker and ask, if your parents were to run into an acquaintance at a grocery store, what would they say about what you do?
0: Oh gosh, that's a great question. I think they would say something like she helps people with high risk pregnancies.
1: And that's kind of leave it. <laughs> just to,
0: just, I'll have to ask them though what they would say, but
1: I think that's how they would leave it. Yeah. I think short and sweet. And then who knows how that conversation goes after. Right. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I guess in my head, I'm imagining like what the acquaintance might ask then. So what does that mean? Like, what is a high risk pregnancy? Yeah. And that is the question I get a lot because I was just having a conversation
0: yesterday about this. It's a really vague term. The term itself actually doesn't mean anything beyond you have a pregnancy where the pregnant person and or the baby are going to need some extra monitoring because you are at higher risk of a complication or multiple complications happening. That's kind of all it means. The reason why that might be the case is Multifactorial. I mean, there are so many different reasons why. But what I want to really highlight is that it doesn't necessarily mean that a complication will arise. It does not necessarily mean that you will have a bad outcome from the pregnancy. It just means we're going to keep some extra eyes on you. We're going to do a little extra monitoring. We might do some extra testing that other people don't do. You might have some more people on your team. We're just going to watch out and be a little more vigilant than we normally
1: would because you're at risk. So, is that something? Where you would typically just trust that your OBGYN or whoever your health professional is will tell you that you're at a high risk pregnancy?
0: Okay. I seriously love that you asked that because that's exactly what that conversation was about yesterday is not necessarily, you may not know. It may be written in your chart. Which we never see. (laughs) Which we never see. Exactly. But you might not be told. So it is something that you have to ask about. It is something that you have to have that conversation about to say, does this constitute as a high-risk pregnancy? Why? What does it mean? And like really go down and have that conversation because of my personal experience as well as what I do professionally, I am very strongly of the mindset, do not make assumptions when it comes to your medical care have the conversation, have it be confirmed or denied, otherwise whichever it may be, but have the conversation and put it all out on the table so that you are on the exact same page as your medical team is.
1: Yeah, I've I've never been pregnant, but I have had some health complications before and it really is I know I've seen you talk on social media about like self-advocacy in a healthcare setting and how much you have to like own your own health. And I'd love for you to talk more about why that's important or why is it in our system that like we own responsibility for what's going on with our health?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I honestly, I would like to start with, I think it's super unfair to put that on patients. You're already going through something. In my case, I'm working with clients who have been through really difficult pregnancies before, maybe have lost children before, and then to have to add one more thing to your to-do list I just want to acknowledge, like, it's not fair and it shouldn't be like this. And yet we are in a system that does not center patients, especially female patients or people who identify as female. We don't do that. The system is not built to center patients. And so we are much at a much higher risk of experiencing medical errors and health complications as a result of those medical errors if we don't actually claim our spot in the center of that team. I I like to describe it with my private clients as you are at the head of the table. You are driving the car. Like Pick an analogy. You're at the center of it. You're at the head of it. You're at the front of it. You cannot be the person that goes along with whatever that is decided for you you are the decision maker which means you get to choose who's at your table and you get to decide when to ask somebody to leave and when to bring somebody else on and again the reason why that's so important is the rate of medical errors the rate of not believing people who identify as women especially especially women of color is so high that there are many 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 preventable health issues that we can actually avoid if the system were different. And that's what the entire article, that CNBC article that you mentioned was all about, is the maternal mortality crisis in the United States is largely based on preventable issues. And so for your health, if you're going to be pregnant, for your future children's health, for your family's health, we have to speak up. We have to say something. And we cannot, as hard as it is, as cumbersome as it feels, as exhausted as you are, we have to have those conversations with our medical team. We cannot assume that everything is taken care of. No matter how wonderful they are, they are also human. And they're also working in a system that is burning them out, burning them on all from all ends at all times, right? And so we've got to work together. We cannot anymore go into our health journey as the passive recipient, expecting the so-called expert to tell us what to do. And then we go in as a good student, go do it. We have to acknowledge that we coming into that relationship are also an equal expert of our bodies. And together in a collaborative way, we are going to find what's going to help us the most. And when we do that, we get to where we want to go a lot faster with a lot less risk of errors.
1: Yeah, the, that's a lot to unpack. But I think one of the things that stuck out to me towards the end there is like whether or not you are used to being the passenger in this journey, we're all trained through the education system that we just listen to authority and we just take it as it is. Like you don't question it. Or even if you did, right, you you stop pretty fast, right? You you make one or two attempts and then you give up. Whether or not that's because there's just no answers to be had or the other person on the other side is also not supported in a way to address your your questions. But it's very much if you're helping to drive that conversation. And nowadays we have the internet, right? So there's a lot of availability of information that we do arrive at the destination faster. So in the concept of like, if you're in a car with your team, whether or not like maybe you took the backseat for a little bit, but you can still be navigating. You can still make sure you don't miss a turn. And that is something that I definitely found in my journey with healthcare. I had to have my gallbladder removed and then was eventually had to be gluten dairy free. And that was something that took ages to figure out what was wrong. That was two years of me feeling like I got stabbed in the stomach. But whenever I ate before we arrived at, oh, we should just take your gallbladder out. So I know what it's like when you're already exhausted and you're dealing with like medical bills and insurance and then finding a provider that's in your network and it's all you, especially when you don't have a spouse or you don't have like a healthcare power of attorney for somebody else to take care of it. And this just brings to mind for me is at least with pregnancy, like as soon as you know, you're suddenly equipped to be like, I can be proactive about this. This is a timeline that you're working against and It sounds like you're providing all the resources needed for people to figure out what are the questions I should be asking or what should I be looking into to talk to my team about?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I'll add that we start way before pregnancy. It's like training for a marathon. We have to begin way before the race date because once it starts, there are some things that we can't do anymore because your body's in a different state than it was pre-pregnancy. And so, yeah, we begin early on, and it's not even about what questions do I ask, but what questions do I ask, and how do I ask them so that I get the answers that I'm looking for, even if they're not the ones I want to hear. It is so much better to walk out of an appointment with an answer you don't want to hear, yes, than with questions that you have no idea how to find the
1: answers to. Absolutely, yeah, that may sound counterintuitive to anybody who hasn't gone through something with the healthcare. Having any answer, even if it's a bad answer that has you like taking care of your affairs is so much better than not knowing why you feel this way or when it's going to end or what you're going to do about it. Totally. So I do want to talk a little bit about trauma with high risk pregnancies. Will you tell us a little bit more of like, I think for me, it's kind of like it never occurred to me that there could be trauma associated with pregnancy or labor. So tell us more about that. Yes. So kind of linking it to what we were just talking about, I'm talking
0: about it as if it's like relatively easy to do to talk and have this conversation with your provider. But a lot of people, especially if you've had complications inside the medical system, often have medical trauma. Before we even get into the pregnancy and birth trauma, just the experience of being a patient in the medical system may have been experienced by your body as medical trauma. The term is medical gaslighting when a provider doesn't believe you. And you're sitting here going, no, this hurts or no, something doesn't feel right. And they go, no, it's fine. Go put your feet up. You'll be okay. Just relax. It's probably stress. And that experience in and of itself can impact how easily or not easily you can have these conversations for sure. And I think when you tie it then to high risk pregnancy, which is the population that I work with. There isn't an option to be pregnant or to birth outside of the medical system. Mm -hmm. Myself included, all of my clients need medical interventions to get pregnant, to stay pregnant. They need to deliver in a hospital setting or a medical setting of some kind because the risks of complications are so high. You don't have the luxury of saying, well, maybe I'd like to try a birthing center as a middle ground. And so you're basically going, I went into the lion's den. I got hurt. And now I'm going to go back into the lion's den because my heart, my soul, my everything wants another child. Yes. And so I really want to acknowledge the layered complexity that is this experience. And I think when we talk about trauma as it pertains to health, to the medical journey, to high risk pregnancy, even the best place to start is by acknowledging what trauma actually is. That word is thrown around everywhere right now. And what we often miss when we're just scrolling on social media, looking at what trauma is, is that traumatic stress is actually a physiological reaction to a threat that happened in the past that could have been five minutes ago, five weeks ago, five years ago, five decades ago. Our body goes into a threat response, which means every cell in our body goes towards keeping us alive and nothing else. That is the only goal of our body in that moment. Our body changes, blood flow changes, the way our nerves function change, our respiratory system changes, our reproductive system changes. We lose access to parts of our brain that require higher order thinking. All of that changes, right? Everything. And normally, when we have that threat response, we're able to come back down, right? Think about when you're going for a walk in your neighborhood and then a dog just jumps out from behind a fence somewhere and barks and you're like, ah, it scares you. Yes. And then it takes a minute or two mean, you're able to, sh- you know, keep going and eventually you come back down to your normal baseline. That in a traumatic event doesn't happen. That survival energy, that shift in your physiology happens and then it doesn't shift back. And it is not by choice. You didn't do anything wrong. There were many, many factors that could have prevented that from happening. And that keeps our body in that threat physiology until we are able to complete that cycle. So that's what we mean by traumatic stress. So when we're talking about high-risk pregnancies, when we're talking about health, not only are we saying that experience was scary, it's that I'm living that experience literally at the cellular level every single day. And then I'm reminded of it when I go back to the doctor, when I get pregnant, when I'm looking at the pregnancy test, when I'm going in for blood work or
1: whatever those those things are. And that's unique to each and every one of us. Yeah. It's, it's like an endless line of triggers yeah. once you you have trauma already. So even coming back down from the traumatic cycle is like, that's almost impossible because yeah. you're always thinking about the next appointment, the next thing that you have to do to prep for your, your child coming into the world.
0: That's right. And what we talk about with my private clients is often this idea that the baseline has changed. You're not coming back down. Like that dog example on your walk, you're coming all the way back down to your regular baseline. In a situation where you're living with traumatic stress, your baseline's already elevated. And so you're not coming back down to actually baseline. You're coming back down to non-immediately acutely triggered baseline. And you can imagine that that's going to affect your health, both during and outside of pregnancy. And Every experience that you have is not just triggered by those external reminders of doctor's appointments and things like that, but also the internal, what we call somatic triggers of the sensation of being pregnant. The way your body changes during pregnancy actually can trigger the traumatic stress in the same way that a blood test can, or walking into the exam room and getting that smell and seeing the color of the walls, exact same way. It's just we have even less access to them until it's happening, Mm. which is why working on this so far ahead is so important so that we're not just trying to put out fires throughout the entire pregnancy. We can actually create an experience you want.
1: Yeah, that's very important, right? Like the access to that feeling. I know that some options for dealing with trauma is like exposure therapy, but if you don't have access to the feeling, then there's nothing you can do until it happens, and then the other thing I want uh, like my brain really like latched onto is when we say that you're having the trauma response, it's about keeping yourself alive. So talk to me about that compared to you. Also, you have another life in your body at the same time. So what happens there? Yep. Your body at that point will try to prioritize both lives. But if it has to
0: choose, it will choose you. And I remember hearing that for the first time when my son was in the NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit. And I'm trying to pump milk Mm -hmm. and I'm not getting much. And he was born extremely preterm. So that was part of it. But also somebody came to me and said, your body will not produce milk for your child if you're stressed out. Oh, because your body will will try to protect you first before giving food to the newborn child. So you got to get it together. Wow. (laughs) I don't appreciate exactly the way (laughs) she said it, but it never left me. It never left me because that's something I think we don't think about is at the end of the day, each and every one of our bodies is going to keep ourselves alive first and then
1: it will be the others in our life that is scary especially you're it is. you're talking about not just while the baby is in your body but also you're definitely going to be stressed yep. your child is in the NICU like there, that's like an unreasonable expectation but like it like extends to the while you're breastfeeding so it's a long marathon to address trauma and what you're really trying to do like your your actual goal versus what your body is trying to prioritize That's right. That's right. And so
0: again, I know it's going to sound like a broken record, but the earlier we start with this work, the much more effective it is when you need it. I always tell my clients, just like you said, I'm never expecting you to not be stressed or to not feel anxious. That's completely unrealistic, especially if you've had these lived experiences before of something going wrong in pregnancy or losing the baby or delivering preterm and all of that. But what we need to do is change the baseline so that your baseline is not quite so high that when you are triggered, you don't go quite as high as you normally do. If you want, you know, that visual, we can come and condense that down, but that takes practice and it takes shifting your physiology before pregnancy first so that you have something familiar to lean back on once you are pregnant in this like brand new body again. There is something familiar you can anchor yourself to and bring yourself down so if it happens during pregnancy, if it happens in the NICU, if you do deliver preterm or baby needs some extra time, you have something that you can anchor yourself to that you've created
1: uh, and been practicing for weeks and months prior. Yeah, you really have to build those habits, and because they'll, they'll new habits will disappear the moment you're in a major stress situation. Totally. So the, the sooner you like make it like breathing, the better off you'll be. Yeah. As a first generation Asian American, I grew up trying to fit into the boxes other people put me in. I considered acting, voice acting, and writing as career options when I was little, but ended up joining corporate America as an IT project manager to take the Asian parent approved path. The good news is, it's not too late for me to follow those more creative goals, but I didn't have the energy to work both my corporate job and follow those passions. And I couldn't shake the cultural directive to be financially stable so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about me. It's so ingrained in me that it's difficult to focus on more creative pursuits or what might be considered passion projects without the financial backing to support myself. That's why I'm such a big fan of building systems and financial foundations that leverage my hashtag very Asian frugal money habits and the more expansive abundance mindset that I strive to embody every day. While sitting at my corporate job feeling like there must be more to life than this, I spent years learning and absorbing information about how to become financially independent, invest in real estate and stocks, and build a business. And now, I'm on track to retire by 40. But more than that, I have the freedom to dress how I want, because how I dress now is certainly not considered professional, adopt unconventional pronouns, and work fewer hours to support my physical and mental health. I get to choose what clients I work with, who I spend time with, and what boundaries I need to set in order to keep the toxic expectations and hustle culture at bay. And I want that for you too. If you're ready to make your next big money move and build the financial foundations you need to feel like you can show up as your full self, I have an offer for you. My generational wealth building money mentorship program is three months of direct access to me and my brain to cut through all of the noise and conflicting information on the internet and get you where you need to be financially. Get a wealth building strategy, action plan, curated resources, and emotional support to put you on the path towards your abundant life. The link is in the show notes. You mentioned a couple of times about changing your physiology. So what does that look like? What does that mean to to change your physiology? It can be
0: really tiny and it can be really big. What it essentially means is you're actually shifting your body out of the state of threat into coming down out of that state into your your baseline, which we call safe physiology. I recognize that that word maybe doesn't always resonate with people, but it's the physiology where you are, the primary focus is no longer staying alive. It is now actually functioning and thriving. And... The way that we do that with the way I work, especially, is um, first doing this with the sensory system, because as we said, right, every cell of your body changes when you're in that threat state. So actually reactivating some of the senses that have gone offline and it involves going back and then maybe turning down some of the senses that have become hypersensitive. So I know a lot of parents, for example, or people after a loss or preterm delivery, they're very sound sensitive. Now, if you have children at home children are very loud and also <laughs> and also when your body and your your physiology is such that you're in that threat response depending on which type of threat response your ears are going to be extra sensitive and so then it gets to like ah, too much And so we start tweaking some of those things. And that's where we start first. We don't go deep in the body. We don't do body scans first. We don't do any of the progressive relaxations and meditation. Like that's all way later. Wow. Let's get your body shifted down. And essentially what we're doing is if you think back to that dog example of how you walk by, you go, ah, dog, your heart's racing. You're like, you have a moment. And then a few moments later, you come back down to your baseline. Your body's already doing it on its own. It's just when you're living with traumatic stress, it's like a clogged pipe. It can't do that. And so we are manually bringing you back down to your baseline and then dropping that baseline lower and lower
1: and lower. As you were describing this, this is how I uh, I actually recently was triggered and my process for, especially if it's work related, is I literally just go take a bath. And that I've discovered is how I signal to my body that I'm done with work for the day, that it can relax, that the, the muscles can be warm and safe, and that I don't have to hang on to that thought anymore. So it sounds like what you're doing might be similar, but of course, I've never tried to do it with sound. So <laughs> there's...
0: Yeah. Well, that's a great example of how you're shifting your physiology, that you're sitting in a particular posture or standing in a particular posture at work. You're moving your body in a certain way at work. Your body's out of a certain body temperature when you're working. And when you go into the bath, you're changing that, right? Like the very fact that we can raise our body temperature by being in warm water, for example, is changing physiology. Now, what we need to do is actually for traumatic stress is to find a way that it's not dependent on I need to be in a bath to make that work. Yes. especially, And this really came into play in 2020 when everybody was taken out of the birthing room and the birthing person was stuck there by themselves with the medical team. Like that more than ever really showed how important it is that we know how to modulate our bodies on our own. So for any reason, if that happens again, whether it's due to another pandemic or you just your partner couldn't make it in time or you don't have a partner or whatever it may be that you know you have the capability of shifting your body without needing anything else outside of you. Yeah,
1: that's a great point. I was going to ask what uh, role does your family play in all of this, but it sounds like there's a balance there. But in the situation where you can have family or friends involved in your pregnancy or your birthing experience, what does that look like? How can they help?
0: Oh gosh, there's so many ways. Everything from just checking in and asking how you're doing and having conversations and including the person to I have... You know, clients who bring in partners or children or friends into their sensory or their somatic work that we're doing to remind them to do it with them. That's super powerful. Now that uh, medical centers are opening up a little bit to having visitors come in during appointments, loved ones can come in with you. So if you need another ally in the room as you're having these difficult conversations or being another set of eyes and ears, somebody can be taking notes for you. And even if they can't, because I know there are some places that are still being really careful about who they're letting in, you can FaceTime people in and let people take some of that off of your shoulder so you can focus on asking the questions in the medical appointments and somebody else can be focused on hearing it so that you can discuss it later because you're also doing a lot for your body to be in a place where you can have these conversations, as we talked
1: about earlier. So it's a lot to put on a person. Yeah, so I absolutely love that because the the self-advocacy thing, I definitely remember I went in with like lists of questions and then like me trying to write it down when they're unfamiliar terms or they're like medical terms that you have to spell. Like that was all like just anxiety inducing. It was like a pop quiz and you're trying to rush to do this. And I know just having somebody else in the room to be that second pair of ears to like catch something maybe I didn't catch, or you can just at least look at them and be like, did that make any sense? And if neither of you understood it, to just start over, that sounds so much better than me trying to do this by myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So I do want to go into a little bit more of like your own personal experience. Like, How did you get into this line of work? What was it that really put you on this path? it was all personal experience. So,
0: I mean, if we really backtrack, when I was a child, I wanted to be an OBGYN because my best friend's dad was an OBGYN and I just thought his work was so cool. And then I met chemistry in college and I went, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I avoided o as well. Yeah, that wasn't on my plan. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't, don't, just don't think like that. It's not a thing." So, I took a huge detour into clinical psychology, and I was actually focused on first developmental psychology, then child therapy in my clinical psychology world as a child therapist, as a family therapist. But there was always something that felt like it was missing from this like reproductive health piece. And it was almost like life was like, all right, here you go. I'll give you something. Let's go to Life University. And so I knew that it was going to be difficult for me to get pregnant because of some chronic health issues that I have. I didn't realize how difficult the whole process would be. So we jumped right into fertility treatment when I was in my 20s. And I lost the first one due to a ruptured ectopic, which means the embryo implanted outside of the uterus. And... Anytime that happens, it is a medical emergency, like to the point where I remember my fertility doctor saying, if you ever want to get seen in an ER, tell them you have an ectopic pregnancy and you will be turbo jetted to the front of the line because it's so dangerous. Oh, wow. So I had life-saving surgery and it was like a whole thing. And it was the first time my husband and I realized like, oh, this could be dangerous. Yeah, This is not just hard this could be dangerous. And so that was a whole. Like, my first experience of trauma related to reproductive health. And then I got pregnant my first cycle of IVF with my son, but it was a very complicated pregnancy. I ended up with eight complications and I was on bed rest from week six. And 22 weeks into the pregnancy, I was admitted to the hospital because I was already three centimeters dilated. And that weekend, I was admitted like at midnight on Thursday. And the next morning, the medical team came and they're like doing all the ultrasounds and checking things out. And they're giving me the medication to stop my contractions. And they were basically bracing us like, it's too early. And we don't think you're going to make it through the weekend. And they gave me 72 hours. And I went, hold on. I just have this feeling there's something I can do. Can I try To shift my physiology. I didn't use those words. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I was like, can I try something? I just have this feeling. And they're like, pat, pat, sure. Go ahead. We don't think it's going to work. But like, who's going to say no to somebody like me in my situation, right? Where they're so certain I'm going to lose this baby over the weekend. They gave me 72 hours. We got 15 days. And it was just late enough to give my son a chance at life. He was born at 24 weeks and five days. Still way too early for what I wish for anybody but it was late enough to give him a chance at life. And that's when I knew I'm done. I'm done with clinical psychology. I'm done teaching at my alma mater. I'm coming back and teaching people how they can influence their pregnancy outcomes, even when they're high risk, even when they're at risk of complications, because it is
1: possible. Wow. And it just kind of took off from there. It's amazing. Like when you say life university, that sounds like you got a crash course. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> we wow. boot camp that one. I'm like, you just kept going with your story, and I kept. Going, I don't even know how to react to this. Or, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, I know. And the part that really blew me away was that it was my experience that really went. No, there's something here. Like I'm nobody special. I don't have any magical powers that made this possible. Right. But it was when I really got serious about okay. Can I actually teach people this? I wanted to validate it for myself. Like, is there research out there? As you know, always having that research brain, I'm going, is there scientific data to prove this? And when I looked, there's 70 years of scientific data. And that's when I got mad. And I said, wait a minute, wait, wait. Not one person said this to me. I went on a hunch and there's 70 years of data behind what I just did? No. That's not okay, And that's really what propelled me into first starting with client work and then writing my book to make a lot of this information more easily and readily available to people who are going through high risk pregnancies.
1: Yes. This sounds like this is like this is what you were meant to do. Right. You have enough experience to understand what a research paper says, because that's definitely not something I expect anybody off the street to be able to Understand even the abstract of a research paper and be like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. And then go into the actual results and understand the implications. So you had that skill set and your own personal experience to understand what was going on. And then because you knew that other people like me would have no clue to even go look for it, right? You are now surfacing this for everybody else. So I definitely want you to share with the audience what is the name of your book?
0: The book is called Pregnancy Brain a mind-body approach to stress management during a high-risk pregnancy. And in there, we dispel all the myths about what stress is and what it's not and how it affects pregnancy health and what you can do about it. And the summary of the 70 years of research that is out there. Yes. That supports all of this. Much needed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's so many medical professionals out there or people who are like tangential to the medical field that like have the same skills that you have and maybe even the same experiences but hasn't brought this delight for people so i'm super grateful that you're you're here to guide us through high risk pregnancies and trauma and talking about like self advocacy for yourself is super huge i know that we shared a lot of tips around how to manage not just the pregnancy aspect, but the self advocacy as well. But if you had to highlight just one for the audience to like, if you remember nothing else, what would that be? Ooh.
0: okay. I guess I'll say if you remember nothing else, remember that you are the leader of your team, whoever is on there. So you get to choose. And you have every right to bring people on, let them stay for as long as you need their support, and then let them go. And you can do that all the way up until you are delivering the baby. So if you're at 39 and 5 and you're not ready to deliver quite yet, but you don't like that provider, you can let them go.
1: Wow. It is absolutely okay. Yeah, that is super important. And I guess I want to understand, too, when you say team, you like are we saying this is the medical professionals? Are we including like your family and friends? You can kick them out when you don't like what they're saying. Yes,
0: absolutely. You get to choose who's in the room at the time of delivery. You get to choose who comes to your appointments, who is privy to the summary of how your appointments went or your blood test results, or your ultrasound results. You get to choose who you share the name with you get to share choose who gets to come visit the baby. You are at the top of that pyramid. You have choices. You absolutely
1: can exercise that right anytime you need. I think a lot of people need to hear that, especially the way we raise women in the US that we just have to do what we're told or that like we're there to serve other people, right? And and I think in the US specifically like when you're pregnant, it's something like everybody else has a right to your body. <laughs> That's right. Yes. It's so hard to fight just because everybody else has a different expectation and assumption. So I love that we're able to say today that like, no, you get to choose. Like you get to set these boundaries. If your mother-in-law is being too nosy, you can say, no, you don't need to know about that. Yeah, exactly. And there's a
0: lot of different people who specialize in teaching how to communicate that in a way that's culturally sensitive or that's linguistically sensitive or just personally sensitive. There's a lot of ways to do that. You don't have to be rude about it. You don't have to be like, no, slam the door. It's over unless you need to. And in that case, that's fine, too. So I really want people to hear that boundaries doesn't mean you're being rude. Mm. You're actually being really mindful and protective of you yes, so that you can do what is most important to you. And if that is having a healthy pregnancy, if that's getting enough sleep, if that's being ready for your IVF cycle tomorrow or whatever it may be, or protecting your child. In our case, it was because he was born so preterm for two and a half years, I was on lockdown with him because he couldn't get sick. If he got even the slightest cold, he would have ended up back in the hospital. And we both went, that's not happening. I- never want to see the inside of a hospital as a parent ever again. So that became our priority, right? So you may have your own and you, once you kind of quiet the noise and you're able to put yourself in that driver's seat at the head of the table, at the top of the period, whatever works for you, you quiet that noise and you can really hear then what is it that's super important to me? Who gets my energy first? Who gets my time first? Who gets my attention first? And then if I have more I'll offer it to others. But I get to choose that.
1: Yeah, that's super powerful. And it really like reemphasizes why like the sooner you work on this, the better because it's not just the trauma response, but there's so much intentionality around being able to set those boundaries. Yeah. And if you want to learn how to be like polite while you're setting the boundaries, that's not something you're going to be able to do in a stressful situation. That's you right. You want to do that ahead of time, practice it in lower threat scenarios and other like non-related scenarios as well. Though I totally abdicate, like, if the only way your family is going to listen to you is by you yelling at them, then by all means. <laughs> totally. <laughs> because that. I mean, yeah. I would say that has been a successful technique in my family is because if I don't, like, emphasize it in a way that they see the importance, then they're just going to assume I'm being polite or I'm just saying that. And so there might be times where you can try all of these really polite techniques. And then you might still have to like go to what I think in the U S we like don't like to yell or we don't like to raise our voice and things like that. But at least for me, I'm like, no, that's effective. That's the only way they know.
0: (laughs) That's exactly what I was trying to
1: say is that, that we have culture that we
0: have to take into consideration, whether it's the familial culture, the communal culture, like whatever that is, there are nuances to that. And you only really, you know, what's going to work. So I really appreciate you sharing that, especially I think coming from an Asian background, like there is a lot of advice that's out there that doesn't work. I know for my culture at all, like that would never fly. They either wouldn't hear it. Like you're saying, they'd just be like, okay, that's nice. Or it would be considered rude, even if it's considered polite in the Western culture. Yes. And
1: so I really appreciate you sharing that. And it it's difficult, right? Because you and I both grew up here. So we kind of like to assume whatever we were taught by the masses is going to apply. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we, I think it's mostly trial and error. You just figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, this has been super valuable. There's so much in here. So I definitely recommend people listening to this several times to really get all the gems out of it. But in closing, I definitely want to ask, because we, we've touched on the Asian American background for your own child. What are you saying you're either doing differently or intend to do differently than how you were raised? I'm teaching them how to
0: one, identify emotions from a very young age, I wanted them to know before anything else, how can you tell me how you're feeling? And it can be a made up word. It could be a color. It could be a monster. Like, it doesn't matter to me. Tell me how you're feeling. (laughs) And so different things worked with each of my kids. But that's something that was really important to me. And as they are getting older, then it's identifying the body sensations that are tied to the emotion. And then the body sensations that are clues that that emotion is coming those are the two things that are really important to me that my children kind
1: of learn now to take into their adult life. That's super important. Yeah, that's it's not even like that's not even a cultural thing from a, an Asian background perspective, though it is more needed, I would say. Right. Like we're less likely to talk about emotions in Asian households. But in general, we don't teach people how to feel into their emotions or identify what they're feeling. So I absolutely love that you're being intentional about that with your children. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I definitely want you to share with the audience. Remind them, where can they find
0: you? Sure. Again, best place is my website, barijatdeshpande.com, because all the links to all the things are there, the book, my podcast, and then social media and all of that. But I typically am on LinkedIn and on Instagram. At Instagram, my handle
1: is healthy.highriskpregnancy. All right. Well, it was lovely having you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. I know that something in this episode left you feeling, oh my God, that's so me. And I want to hear about it. Leave a review on iTunes or tag me on social media and share your relatable story with us so that we can normalize our experiences as Asian Americans and help more people feel safe to step outside of the box. I can't wait to hear about it. You can find me on Instagram at tj.wey and don't forget to design your abundant life.